Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Midwestern Scout. I'm your host, Dustin White. In this episode, we'll be looking at the first part of the story of Elizabeth McKellen, Bismarck's Madame, a little history of Eagle Nose Butte, as well as this day in history. As this train arrived at the end of its track in Bismarck in 1873, a young woman emerged from one of the cars. That woman was Elizabeth McKellen, and she would have a great impact on the area, an impact that's much larger than most realize. Bismarck would also have a considerable effect on McKellen. It would become a community that she seemed to really love, even if it didn't always love her back. It would be the city that much of her story took place, where she made a name, or two, for herself. But it isn't where her story begins, not by a long shot. Her story begins across a pond, in Wales, with a young couple trying to find a new life. That couple was Mary and David Jenkins, and when they boarded a ship bound to the United States and left their home in Wales, little did they know the impact their children would have on a small community in what would become North Dakota. The couple would arrive in New York in the early part of the 1800s. Settling in Oneida County, David would support his growing family as a farmer. The two would eventually have at least four children, two sons, David and James, as well as two daughters, Elizabeth, and a sister whose name has been lost, but was possibly Mary. Two of the children, James and Elizabeth, would be born close together, with only about a year separating their births. That closeness would follow them throughout the rest of their lives. In 1861, the nation would completely change. The South broke from the Union, and over the next four years, three-quarters of a million people would perish. For the Jenkins family, their two sons would join the fight. David would eventually be assigned to the infantry and sent out west. He would settle in North Dakota after a short stay at Fort Rice. James would see action closer to home. Enlisting in 1863, James would bounce around a bit, but eventually would land in Company A of the 16th Regiment, New York Heavy Artillery. After the war ended, Elizabeth and James would work their way west and eventually join their brother, David, in Dakota Territory. Both would take different routes, though. James would initially settle in Kent, Michigan, getting married and having at least one child, Ira O. Jenkins. Elizabeth, on the other hand, traveled to Brainerd, Minnesota, where she would begin to establish her career. However, her stay would be short-lived. In 1873, the city of Brainerd, in an attempt to rid themselves of their soiled doves, enacted an ordinance that would suppress houses of ill fame and punish those who ran such establishments. For Elizabeth, it was a message to leave. She had worn out her welcome. That same year, as the railroad reached the banks of the Missouri at Bismarck, or what was known then as Edwinton, Elizabeth and a companion would arrive in the wickedest city in the West. Stepping off the train, she would begin to make plans for setting up her own shop, a brothel, in the heart of the city. Arriving in Bismarck, Elizabeth would quickly make a name for herself. While she would receive mail as both Ida Lewis and Elizabeth McKellen, sometimes spelt with a D at the end, she would largely be known as the Little Casino. The name became her calling card, with the two of spades being referred to as the Little Casino and the Game of Casino being her trademark. Elizabeth would have this sign placed over her house, while she carried the deuce of spades in her purse to display when needed in order to advertise her business. And business was good. With Bismarck being the end of the tracks, a steamboat landing, a jumping off point for the Black Hills, and having the 7th Cavalry just stationed across the river, it was an ideal place for Elizabeth to open up shop. The first few years in Bismarck were quiet for Elizabeth. 
As a true businesswoman, though, she quickly made a few wise investments by buying up dozens of lots in the city. While a few parcels of her property would be developed on, the most impressive would be the building she built at 701 Front Avenue, where the current Bismarck Tribune building now sits. Situated just across from the railroad tracks, construction of the building would finish in the fall of 1877. To celebrate its opening, Elizabeth held a ball that became the talk of the town. Soon, Elizabeth's brothel would become the premier emporium of its kind in town. The reputation of her establishment was further enhanced by her acquisition of the first piano in the city. Many who frequented her burdello would take a part of it home with them. Mule skinners and bullwhackers driving freight in and out of the town prized the tassels from her window curtain, using them as adornments for their lead animals of their pack trains. Elizabeth would end up having to replace her curtains many times. While the opening of her new establishment on Front Avenue would be a great accomplishment for Elizabeth, it did come with a number of problems. With the city having passed an ordinance in regards to houses of ill fame in 1875, a shift began to occur in Bismarck. That ordinance would cause Elizabeth, who was said to run the toniest body house in the city, as well as ten other persons, to be indicted by the grand jury. Ten of those indicted would plead not guilty, pay a $300 bond, and have their cases continued. Elizabeth, showing her savvy, pled guilty, paid the $100 fine, accepted the receipt for it, and went back to her home and business. Through running a successful establishment, Elizabeth would position herself as a pillar of the community. In 1879, when the first national bank was founded, Elizabeth was among the early stockholders, and would remain so for many years. And when leaders of Bismarck came together, working in a bid to make the city the capital of Dakota Territory, she was said to have unofficially given, as her name does not appear on the list of donors, $1,200 to the cause. When asked if that wasn't a lot of money for her, she simply looked around the room and said that she saw much more from where that came from. Bismarck became Elizabeth's home. It appeared that she truly loved the community. While she would work to help accomplish large goals of the city, she was also interested in helping those who were down on their luck. It would be said that her largest fault appeared to be her generosity. While she would make a lot of money, through helping others as well as having expensive tastes, she would also spend a lot. In order to give back to the community wisely, Elizabeth would end up working with Reverend I.O. Sloan, a Presbyterian minister, giving him money in order that he could use it to help the needy through his church. However, if she knew of a family or a child that was in need, she would do what she could to help the situation. Moving into the 1880s, the situation for Elizabeth McKellen would become a bit more complicated. We'll explore that more in the next episode of the Midwestern Scout. On the west bank of the Missouri, just north of the city of Huff, a butte cuts into the landscape, causing the road to swerve. Many have taken on the beauty of the Eagle Nose Butte. Traveling along the highway, Highway 1806 south of Mandan, it is easy to pass it without much thought. It stands bare, and while it may capture one sight for a moment, it is quickly swept by. More than a century ago, a group of explorers did take notice, though. On October 19, 1804, Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, came upon the butte. They were informed by an Arikara chief that within the hollows of the chains of hills that the butte was located, dwelled the Calumet bird, the Golden Eagle. Upon the hilltop, Lewis and Clark saw an old, fortified village. Now abandoned, the village, they were told, was once occupied by the Mandan. 
It was here that the duo solved the first ruins of the Mandan nation. Nearly three decades later, in 1833, as Prince Maximilian of Weed traveled through the area, his company reached the same beautiful hill chain. Taking in the sights, Maximilian saw a troop of swans, beaver paths, and with just a brief mention, the ruins of a trading house. The story of Eagle Nose Beach goes back to a time when the Mandans lived further east, near a lake. It was at this time that they met a chief by the name of Maniga. Maniga was a chief who caused great troubles for the Mandans, who would cross the lake in order to collect valuable shells. Explaining to Alfred Bowers, Scattercorn said that whenever the Mandan attempted to do such, Maniga would order their visitors to consume large quantities of food, water, tobacco, and women, often causing the death of those Mandans who made the journey. Intervening, Lone Man, along with several men who had bottomless appetites, crossed a lake and tricked Maniga. Becoming angry, Maniga promised to visit the Mandan in the form of a flood. It was at this point that the Mandan are said to have split up. While a group of the Mandans traveled west to the mountains, another group stopped at the Eagle Nose Butte. Upon the hill, which they picked for its high ground, they built a village that they hoped would be high enough as not to be destroyed by the impending flood. Some have said there was none other than Goodford Robe, the Mandan hero, who is said to have led the tribe out of the earth, who constructed the settlement. As the flood came, frightened, the Mandan inhabitants called out to Lone Man, who built a plain corral around the town. They would succeed in holding back the deluge. The corral would later be recreated as a sacred shrine and placed in the ceremonial plaza of every Mandan village. Ring planks would represent the corral, while cedar posts inside symbolized Lone Man himself. The corral and cedar inside it became a representation of security, but that security came with a price, responsibility. Each year, an annual performance of the Okipa, a long, costly, difficult rite, where participants would endure great pain while also reenacting their history, was required. For the Mandans, it was considered a worthy trade-off. The Okipa would become to be seen as not only a ceremony that provided protection, but also helped to reinforce their tribal identity. It was said to have given them luck, which lasted until the smallpox was brought by the white man. Eventually, the founders of the village on the top of Eagle Nose Butte left. However, the remains would survive. In 1781, a smallpox epidemic struck the Mandan people. While many would perish, those who survived found a new strength. A decade and a half after Lewis and Clark came upon Eagle Nose Butte, a new village was rebuilt. Homesick and longing for the days when large villages with throngs of individuals lined the Missouri, a group of traditional Mandans migrated south, back to their ancient homelands, at the heart of the world. The move came in 1820, after a murder had disrupted tribal life. Those who chose to leave were, as Alfred Bowers learned, survivors of the West Side Heart River villages, survivors of the earlier smallpox epidemic. The site they chose, upon Eagle Nose Butte, had become the customary village of those who quarrel, a residence for dissenters. Being the birthplace of the Okipa, it also showed a deep connection to sacred geography. Life at the site would have been difficult. Cut off from rest of the Mandan villages, the old-timers, as they were survivors of the 1781 epidemic, were vulnerable. If the Lakota would attack, those settled in the village would have no hope of assistance. For the next three years, they remained at this village. 
However, eventually, they were persuaded to return from their isolation. The family of the murdered victim had invited them back. Just a decade later, on June 15, 1833, Maximilian would come upon this village and the beautiful hill chain. Seeing the ruins, he remarked, this was a very fine sight. Eagle Nose Butte would also hold other significances for area tribes. Standing as an important part of not only the Mandan history, it held a special significance for the Hadatsa as well. It would also become the birthplace of the Little River Woman Society. Eventually, for the Rikara, it also became a gathering place for those scouts hired by George Custer. This Day in History, May 10th through the 16th. On May 10th, 1916, the headline read, Gimel Man is killed at Mandan. A 12-day investigation had reached its conclusion when Coroner T.G.C. Kenley identified Oscar C. Briggs of Gimel, Minnesota, as the man who was killed in the Mandan Railroad Yards. It was through the interchange of notes and telegrams between Kenley and Mrs. Maud Briggs of Gimel that Oscar's body was finally identified. Also on May 10th, from the year 1918, John Grass, or also known as Charging Bear, who was a chief of the Blackfeet Band of the Lakota people, passed away. Grass was known as Charging Bear in his youth. When he was just three years old, he was baptized at a Jesuit mission by Pierre John DeSmith. He would end, end up marrying three sisters, including Cecilia Walking Shield, in a Lakota ceremony in 1867. And in 1894, he and Cecilia renewed their marriage vows in a Roman Catholic ceremony. In his youth, John Grass would attend the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where he learned to read and speak English fluently. He would later use those skills on behalf of his people when engaged in negotiations with the United States government. During the time of the Ghost Dance Movement and the Wounded Knee Massacre, Grass would advocate peace with the United States, which put him at odds with some of the Hunkpapa leaders. Chief White Bull would describe Grass as, quote, a good talker, not a thinker or a smart man, could always say yes, but never no, unquote. But largely what the nation would remember him as was the last great chieftain of the Lakota Indians, who had died at Fort Yates after a long illness. May 11, 1918. $50,000 in bonds. More than $50,000 worth of German bonds were said to be owned by individuals in Morton County, unless some could have been much greater. The bonds were sold by Hans Gruno before the United States entered into World War I. Gruno had been in the United States since 1904, having traveled throughout the West selling bonds. May 12, 1890. Protest against Fort Lincoln abandonment. A large attended meeting of citizens organized in order to protest the proposed abandonment of Fort Abraham Lincoln as Indian scares spread throughout the area. Led by farmers who had settled in the area because of the government protection, they said they would be compelled to abandon their farms if the fort was closed. Reports had circulated around the country about potential attacks by hostile Indians, while those in the Bismarck Mandan area were fearful of what they deemed were thousands of Indians within a day's journey. The Indian scare largely amounted to nothing, while individuals throughout Morton County, as well as Burley County, would make preparations for such an attack, nothing ever materialized. Instead, the fear would subside, and eventually, Fort Lincoln would be abandoned in 1891. May 13, 
1919, North Dakota Ready to Start State Bank. An agreement was finally reached on several important policies for the new state bank. The bank had a $2 million bond issued for capital, which was authorized by the Nonpartisan League majority during the previous legislature. May 14, 1920. Convicted of nine murders. One of the most grisly murders in the state reached a conclusion when Henry Lawyer was convicted of murdering his neighbor, Jacob Wolf, and Wolf's wife, six children, and a hired man. Lair would serve a life sentence for the crime. Lair had confessed to authorities that he had murdered the Wolf family because of a quarrel started after his cow was bitten by Wolf's dog. Lair said that when he protested, Wolf threatened to kill him. Lair would claim that he wrestled a gun from Wolf and then killed the whole family. The murder itself had happened on April 22, 1920, on the Wolf Farm just three miles north of Turtle Lake. John Kraft, who was a neighbor, had found the eight bodies two days after the murder. Kraft had went to the Wolf's house when he noticed the family's wash hanging on an outside line in soggy weather. When he entered the farmyard, Kraft would be horror-stricken as he found the mutilated bodies. However, there was one survivor, a baby girl named Emma, who was almost nine months old. Kraft found her in a small bedroom in a cradle lightly clad and weak from hunger and cold. Authorities would quickly zero in on the neighbor, Henry Lair, as a chief suspect. Just two weeks later, he was convicted and served five years of a life sentence before he died in prison at the state penitentiary. Lair would spend the rest of his life in prison trying to appeal that confession to the North Dakota State Supreme Court. He denied his guilt and said that he had confessed under duress, intimidation, and fear. He claimed that he was beaten by officers, forced to stare at pictures of the victims, and told an angry mob was waiting outside the jail to lynch him if he was released. Lair said the authorities told him the penitentiary was the safest place for him to wait for things to die down. Then he was told he could file a change of plea and receive a jury trial. No such jury trial would be had. If there was such a trial, it is possible that Lair may have gotten off. There was no physical evidence to connect him to the murders, but people were scared and investigators and others wanted the case resolved quickly. He was the easiest person to pin it on. In 1925, Lair would end up dying in the prison hospital at 3.10 a.m. on March 21st. He was said to have been a model prisoner and continued to stress that he was not guilty. His death had come after complications with an appendicitis, where he was operated on at the St. Alexis Hospital about 10 days before he died. He was taken to the prison hospital just a couple days before his death, and after heart troubles developed and a blood clot formed, he would pass away. One of the mysteries surrounding the murders was why Lair, or whoever the murderer was, did not kill baby Emma. Lair, who had confessed to the killings, said that the only reason he did not kill the baby was because he did not know she was in the bedroom where she was sleeping during the time the horrible crime was committed. Emma, and most in the Turtle Lake region, would grow up knowing of the horrible murder. Emma would end up living with relatives, and then eventually a benefactor, until she was an adult. She later married Clarence Hansen and died in 2003 at the age of 84. May 15th. 1917. Paper Man Held Under Pigging Act. North Dakota had their first hearing under a new law which made an agent of a liquor company equally liable with a pigger or a bootlegger. Philip Bender of Hebron, 
was on trial for accepting orders for intoxicating liquors. He was arrested in connection with a seizure of 42 barrels of wine at Hebron. There were three charges against him. May 16, 1952. Radio announcer turns laundress. Radio announcer Jack Harris made a promise that may have been too big for him to keep. Harris told his listeners that he would do the laundry of anyone who could identify the author of the statement. Quote, so much to do with so little time. Unquote. Miss Henry Hopp was the first to respond correctly, saying that the quotation was that of Cecil John Rhodes, the South Africa pioneer, the man who provided for Rhodes Scholarship. To Harris's dismay, Hope was a laundress for the Mandan State Training School and its 300 inmates and employees. That wraps up this issue of the Midwestern Scout. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to either iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. If you'd like to connect with me, you can go to either www.midwesternscout.com or send me an email at editor at midwesternscout.com. I would love to hear from you.